to this week's episode in a new season of How Does the Social Work, the podcast for and about social workers. This year is brought to you from the Division of Social Work at Brunel University London in collaboration with Ginger Giraffe, the user-led research and innovation cooperative. My name is Dan Vale and I'm your co-host and I'm here with my fellow giraffe, Dr. Mariam Zanuzzi. Say hi, Mariam. Hello, good morning. Now, our guest today, and we're very excited to say, is Dr. Lisa Stafford. Uh, she's a senior lecturer and research fellow at the Queensland University of Technology in Australia, and the author of a lot of interesting research in the area of critical disability studies. Uh, in particular today, we're looking at her chapter in the recently published Routledge Handbook of Critical Pedagogies for Social Work. <clears throat> now, the chapter is entitled Disrupting Ableism in Social Work Pedagogy with Morris Merleau-Ponty and Critical Disability Theory. Hello, Lisa, and welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here to, um, to talk about this. It's always good to have a chat about critical, um, critical theory and um, social work, isn't it? And, um, and ableism that we're talking about today, hopefully. Well, I mean, I've got to say, I, I studied philosophy as an undergraduate um, and I was very frustrated that French philosophy was not really on the curriculum at all. It, so it was all sort of the Anglo, um, Anglo and sort of Western schools of thought. Um, and the only people in my student cohort, and we are talking quite a long time ago now, who studied any French philosophy were the English students who studied Lacan and Foucault in critical um, literary theory. But it strikes me that as, certainly in Britain and perhaps in the kind of Anglophone world in general, French philosophers are woefully understudied and underrated. And I say this partly because the work that Mariam and I have done for, for many years, which is based on Mariam's uh, PhD, was, was greatly influenced by some French philosophers. And also, um, it, it, it strikes me that certainly in the UK, a, a philosopher tends to be just a philosopher, a professional philosopher. Whereas in the French kind of world, they are all sorts of things. I mean, the man who, who, whose work you're, you've been talking about was also a psychologist, was interested in language and cultural theory. And it strikes me that it's a much more kind of creative and well, embodied approach to, to thought, really. So I'm really excited about this, um, but I'm very aware that probably the listeners won't necessarily be particularly familiar with Maurice Merleau-Ponty and his contributions. Would you be able to just kind of talk us through a bit about his ideas and why they've become so important, you think, in, in, in your work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we could spend a whole time, couldn't we, talking about, you know, I think the whole idea of phenomenology as a, as a philosophy and what that contributes. But I suppose when I was introduced to Melly Ponty's work, it sort of gave me an aha sort of moment in terms of trying to explain, I suppose, the embodiment, our embodiment, how we experience and be in the world. You know, that so much of everything we've been told about for a long time, particularly now, Western colonized societies like Australia and you, is, you know, that it's so much about always thinking and thinking through just thought and that whole detachment from our bodies. We're just things that sort of sort of be, which as a disabled person myself and um, also having worked with children and young people, that's sort of been my area for a very long time in practice and sort of research and why I got back into research was really that the world's different for all of us and we inhabit and experience our environment very differently according to our, our world and the world and that interaction between the world. It's not just us, our people and beings, but everything we do is actually in connection with our, our environment, our world. We just, space doesn't just exist. We actually are part of it. We, we exist through that world. And, and it was through the literature and okay, it's, it can be a little bit heavy, all sorts of, um, <laughs> some of the phenomenology can be heavy, but his, his descriptions of, body at hand or body in moment or the lived body it really spoke to me that the body is a living being it is how we live and experience our world and and really started to make sense you know a good one when I used to teach this to students is like 
the whole notion of our bodies are sort of habitual in a sense that we we do things without consciously thinking about them you know particularly stuff we've learned like so when you drive a car and you end up at a destination go oh how did I get here so our body takes over and does this sort of stuff that's another way of you know understanding that is a living doing thing people also call it body memory you know or muscle memory is another term that's used but it's really just understanding that through our habits, through our ongoing interactions that our body does take over sometimes too. And that's for all of us, our own spatial agency in a sense is really what that's about. Whether you have an impairment or not, your body is becomes in habit. Yeah. So yeah, there's, there's actually um, there's a lovely quote, isn't there, which actually you put in the chapter, but I think it's a great one to introduce people to the, the concepts, which is I instead of Descartes, who said, I think therefore I am, and who separated between the mind and the body, um, which has sort of got us into quite a lot of trouble. At least that's that's what you argue in, in the chapter. And Melo Ponti says, I am conscious of my body via the world, and I am conscious of the world through the medium of my body. And the interesting thing about that is that there's been quite a lot of recent advances in the understanding of consciousness. And now the prevailing theory is that you cannot have consciousness without corporeality. You cannot have consciousness without being a body and that really backs up all of the things that Merleau Ponty was saying I mean and he died quite a long time ago right I mean 60 years ago or something yeah and unwritten work that he'd you know had had thought about you know moving this forward as well and we're lucky that people like David Seaman has taken that further and you know have really looked at its application um, broadly and trying to capture what that looks like from time and space that it's not just our body moment, but how does that relate to temporality as well, that time, space, body relationship? And Seaman actually takes it further and talks about the body ballet when he's talking about the habitual body, that smooth movement or sequence of movements that just flow as part of everyday life. And we don't necessarily are aware of it until it's taken for granted, until it's disrupted. And, you know, when Molly Ponty talks about, you know, most of us can adjust and adapt our bodies in that moment. You know, I think I talk about when you're walking along the footpath and you know you have that awkward dance with the person walking towards you which way do you go left or right but you adjust and walk through that but for many people um, and particularly um, non-normative bodies that I describe you know when that disruption comes about whether it's because we've denied access to an environment or um, where the world is abruptly shown to us that we're not included or our our ways of body and space it's just not thought about that that's so disrupting and almost you know not just a disembodiment of an experience but also the fact that we become you know immobilized all that coercive immobility because of others not not necessarily our own bodies in movement they know what they're doing it's unfortunately the world around it does not accommodate or is reflective of our diversity in that space and I think that's lovely and that's where Seaman's work helps to sort of extrapolate on some of Merle Ponty's ideas to help us understand what that looks like. And that's, it's a very, we should say that this idea of normativity and what uh, you're calling the normate body is central to this work, which is that that society promotes, well, not just promotes, but actually the idea of this ideal normal body that is in, you know, whole and fully functional. In fact, the concepts of wholeness and fully functional being essentially projected as being those of, a, of often a young, physically athletic, white, able-bodied person, which actually is not the normal in society. It's, a, it's the minority. But those, that idea seems to underpin, well, lots of the things that society do and lots of the concepts in society. But of course, here we're talking about social work and it's your argument that in, in social work, that kind of the hidden specter of the normative permeates all of the things that we do. And therefore, in order to teach social work and, and to practice it, we have to challenge and understand that critically from the start and not just by plonking the studies of disability into one small module of social work education or indeed one small module of social work practice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's been something that's been, I suppose, hasn't been brought into question. You know, we've just accepted this idea, this normate that's been projected on and overlaid across all of our bodies <laughs> um, for quite some time. You know, it, and it's amazing, as you said, it's the minority, but it holds so much power. It is always positioned up as 
the being, you know, it is. Um, and that's where, you know, Rosemary Garland Thompson's work is fantastic. You know, she's the one who coined the normate. That's the work she did. And, and the histories that go with that around how did it get constructed or reconstructed and never called into question. And, and is that partly because of Cartesian, you know, we, we othered and objectified the body, didn't give it much thought. And is it also because, you know, we've, we're happy to be projecting or portraying this ideal that we're all measured against and all full, <laughs> full away from and how far away from that you are, the further othering that you are. I mean, even Goffman called this out in Stigma. He has a beautiful description, you know, not a beautiful description, but a description of who's afforded that power and control while others are, you know, have all different levels of oppression and marginalization that they've experienced over time. And as I said, depending on how far you are away from that normate, the further you are away from it. And, and social work has been complicit in that. We, you know, the medicalized idea, the medicalized model, people have been treated as deficits and needing to be fixed, um, needing to be amended, needing to be brought into or repaired in order to measure up or reflect normalcy. You know, it has, and that's just not social work, that's human services, it's broader, even, even sociology. When we talked about, you know, in social theory, class, gender, race, age they've all been there but disability has never been present hasn't been present you know when you look at the great classics that we were taught disability has always just been left off it's very rare or it's only been recent that you're seeing it brought more into the conversation and that that's because we're institutionalized for so long people were institutionalized and hidden away from society for so long for being what different othered you know and so we have to confront it and I think the one way we do it is we start talking about this prejudice that isn't being spoken about for a while until there's been you know the really strong theory of late scholarly work that's been around ableism but it is something that we haven't contested and disrupted for quite some time and 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 now we are you know it's good to see but yeah I think there's those layers it's not just one thing or another there's multiple layers that have all reinforced what we should do, how we should look like, how we should think, feel and sense. And anything when you fall outside of that, what happens? One of the things that's really interesting is that you, you, you speak to, uh, to social work academics. I, I'm a disabled person and I'm visibly disabled. I'm a wheelchair user. And I'm often shocked that, you know, when I say, oh, you know, why is disability not covered alongside race, gender, sexuality. Social work academics will say right to my face, oh, but disability is different. It's not the same as race or class or gender. And I, you know, you know, you know, when you just don't have words, literally I get stopped in my tracks, but I especially love it when non-disabled people try to tell me what is and isn't discrimination. That's always a very special moment. Oh, look, totally, Miriam, because um, I'm also a, a power wheelchair user myself and um, and also visibly. But, I mean, I've I've been progressive, so I've been hidden for a while. And, um, but, uh, yeah, but it's interesting. Look, oh, we could go on for ages. I actually wrote an article out of my frustrations of just doors and door handles and not even being able to teach as a lecturer because my, the rooms don't assume you to be a lecturer. You're the, you might be a disabled student stuck at the end of the, you know, at the auditorium right at the back, but amount of times I couldn't even get into rooms to teach. I spent three years where they kept putting our meeting, our school meeting behind three doors I could never get through. No one, you know, so yeah, we have a long way to go. There is this assumption so entrenched that, yeah, it's like, well, that's just medical. You just, it's just something we do or something different. Yeah, it's it's a real issue, Miriam. And I don't, I don't think we've really addressed it. I mean, there is some awesome critical um, social workers like Nikosha here in Australia that's been calling it out for quite some time. You know, there's plenty of people, Tanya, over in um, Canada, but yeah, it's still, there's small voices and you're right, even trying to get it recognized and acknowledged beyond one unit. And even then it can get pulled. It's definitely not embedded. We're not part of the intersections. Like disability happens in domestic violence. Disability happens as a child. Disability happens as an older person. Disability happens if you're an indigenous person or a homeless person. It's, and the reasons why people keep not being able to get access to so women experiencing domestic violence who have disabilities talk about all the time that they're not even serviced through dis domestic violence services because they don't know how to accommodate their needs 
or they can't accommodate their needs. Like we're falling through the cracks everywhere because of the siloed approach to disability. Yeah. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it, it, it is because as a disabled person, interestingly, you can't be both. I've noticed, right? You can only be disabled, but how dare you try and be a woman and disabled or black yeah, totally. and disabled or you're intersect, you know, can we just, I actually had a social worker in assessment say, can we just ignore your intersections? Because it's just getting, <laughs> it's not covered in my assessment and it's all a bit confusing and I'm a newly qualified social worker. And I thought, what? I mean, I was like, well, well, no, can we ignore your race then at the same time? Can we just ignore your, can we just talk about, because, you know, actually, if you, th- if you think about it, a lot of what black feminists argue is that early liberation feminism ignored these other intersections. But yet those people who experience those intersections are often the ones that really struggle with the idea that disabled people also come with those intersections. And the human services, whether they be social services or other services, can't cope. I mean, Dan and I did a piece of research 18 months ago looking at disability and parenting. Oh, my goodness. How dare you, a disabled person, go off and be a parent? Aren't you enough of a burden as it is without bringing children into the world? And that's, that's the kind of unconscious prejudice that goes on but actually when you when parents disabled parents meet the system then you really see the systemic discrimination that that goes on where parents capability is immediately judged because on the kind of capability frameworks that they have it's all about whether you're able to do certain things for children so we had disabled parents being assessed as to whether they could change a nappy for a baby in a hospital, on a hospital ward where the table was too high. And then Mm -hmm. they were told, oh, no, well, this baby's going to have to go into foster care because you clearly can't look after it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's it's profound. The judgments just based on assumptions of capacity is profound. And that's tangled up with the body. It's tangled up with mind mind and body our sensory components everything about it and it's again you know it's such a hidden thing so I'd love to read it so send it to me because we um we've we were looking at the family support programs which can be voluntary or required according to the child protection system here and and children's voices in that and a lot of our children had disabilities and the overlay what they experience as well is not only are you a child, but you're a child with a disability. So you couldn't possibly be able to articulate your needs or be part of conversations. And we also found, still need to think about it a bit more, but there was also the assumptions of parents as well that had disabilities or learning impairments and stuff like that. And the assumptions overlaid around choice and voice. It's quite interesting. Yeah. So yes, please share it with me. I'd love to yeah, love to listen to it. But yeah, you're right. And those those systems so harmful if we get it wrong. I think that's that's the reality. The impact on people's lives and livelihoods is profound. Yeah. I thought we could perhaps get under the bonnet really of, of why disability is is treated in this way. And it strikes me that there is a sort of there's a historical thing around patronage and patriarchy and charity. Um, and then there's also sort of a, a linguistic thing. I mean, obviously, you know, concepts of disability and previously the word handicap are all almost linguistically programmed to make you think about deficit and, you know, paternalism. And this, this concept of deficit, unfortunately, seems to have been operationalized in social work. So your eligibility for a service is based around concepts of need and need is deficit. It's defined as that which, if it's not met, will lead to suffering. And the points about intersectionality are really interesting because no one would say, or at least you know, no one in their right mind in, in our world um, would rightly claim that being black or being a woman or being Muslim is a deficit. It may you may be disadvantaged by society and, and prejudiced uh, against, but it's not a deficit in and of itself. But the concept of disability seems to lead people almost implicitly to think that it's deficit whereas 
while social work courses are based, supposed to be based around anti-oppressive practice and looking at assets and capabilities, we don't seem to be able to escape from language and practice and managerial organization of services which are based around deficit. So my question is, A, um, is that correct as a kind of critique? And B, what can we actually do about that? Mm, uh, yes, it's exactly right. Like, it's not just about need, but I mean, I can just look at, I can give a, a classic example at the moment, our National Disability Insurance Scheme, which was supposed to be about, it was supposed to be emancipatory. It was supposed to be about self-determination, choice control, these key fundamentals, changing the way people with disabilities could live and determine their, their life and goals and stuff like that. It's continually being eroded and we're fighting every for everything. Um, but assessments, the first thing is around eligibility. You have to you have to prove your deficit. You have to prove how impaired you are in order to get any access to support. And and this whole framework, and I think I do talk about the National Disability Assurance in the chapter, it's actually got worse since I wrote that one, because they're trying to bring in compulsory assessments and that those assessments are done by others that aren't known to you so that it can somehow be neutral or impartial. Like, I mean, that alone has so many layers of that we'll always see that just shows how, I suppose, how profound the medicalization and thinking about disabled people are, like that we are deficits, we are burdens, we're at charities, we're pitied. Like that is just so profound still. And this whole notion then overlaid with that, and that's because of neoliberalism, thank you, now also has to say that are you really disabled or how disabled are you enough to be deserving of this intervention and support. So, so the medicalization never went away. It's just neoliberalism just brought it to another level and said, well, we're only gonna give you money if you are really deserving, if you're disabled enough in order to actually give you this support. And, you know, we're, we're seeing that played out. I mean, the UK, you, you've had that experience with work, you know, the whole, um, oh, what's yeah, the, the department, is it the Department of Pension and Work or whatever the name was? Um, you know, that's played out and, and it played out in Australia, um, Australia as well around the Displaced Support Pension. That already happened, but this whole program that was all based on participation and self-determination and choice and control has now come to the control of others telling us what, what we can and can't have and who can actually get even support in the first place. And that's constructed through this social human services framework. I guess the question, though, is do we as disabled people now truly believe and, you know, uh, I'm going to uh, kind of preface this with like where I've got to the myth that any of these services are here to actually enable disabled people to get on with their lives. They're not. All of these human services are there to put blocks in the way of you being able to access the resources that you need. And all of the assessments aren't to make sure that you are eligible, they're to try and work out how to make you not eligible. And and so uh, actually it's kind of, it, it's, I mean, to use a kind of Marxist kind of, I mean, I'm not really a Marxist, but you know, you, you kind of end up kind of going in that direction just out of your own frustration. But for me, it's kind of turned into a sort of class war you know, between disabled people who deserve to have equal access to the universe and need additional resources to have access to the universe and systems trying to work out ways in which not to give you those things. And, um, you know, it kind of brings us back to another piece of work that Dan and I are doing around housing at the moment. And uh, we continually find ourselves saying to the housing organization which is supposed to be a community-led housing program and i i keep on having to say look this cannot just be housing because we have support requirements so you putting the support function over there and the housing function over there is really not very helpful in the design an application of housing for disabled people. We need you to bring it together. And they just sit there and stare at you like you're talking to them about something which is so sort of like difficult. Like, why would we bring it together? It's just kind of like, oh my goodness. 
you know, how dare I want to live in a co-housing community with other disabled people and some non-disabled people and construct that ourselves? And, you know, how, how dare we sort of say, oh, you know, but actually the housing needs to be constructed differently and there needs to be support systems in there. And they kind of go, oh, no, no, but you need to write your business plan as just a housing project because we don't do all that other stuff. I'm like, no, but all that other stuff is my life. What are you talking about? Sorry, that was a rant and a half. No, but I think the reality, and and it just comes back to this whole notion of, you know, separating body from mind and body from space. It's a classic, you know, housing uh, like we live in it, it's the it. How does it not sort of be together? You can't separate the function from body. You know, it's it's again this whole. Let's just fit it nicely in a neat box because that's easy to deal with. I don't want to deal with the people and bodies and life. It gets complicated, and it's because it's it's been the way of doing for a long time. The siloing not just of the service delivery and parts of people's lives, you know, like education's here, health here. It's too difficult. And and I also had a thought, you know, when it was similar to the homelessness movements where, you know, the whole motion of is it housing first or support first? Uh, actually, both. It has to be together in order to support people to live well and, and maintain their tenancies and stuff like that. That's been around for quite some time. But to get that happening, it's like it's a pilot project or something special in order to have to happen rather than the mainstream. And I think that's a lot of a lot of the issues. There are some good stuff happening, but they're always treated as some little side project or it's, oh, oh, that was nice, but that was just a little idea or that was a nice little project, but it can't be the main. Well, why can't it be the main? Why can't we start changing this? And that's why I think, you know, those questions come in, what you were saying, Dan, how do we change it? It's having these really serious, hard conversations, I think. Yeah. And I mean, perhaps some academics are afraid to introduce that into the curriculum, the idea of disruptive innovation in that space. Because if we're correct that we need to to embed critical understandings of disability and other things into all areas of social work, then there's surely a compulsion then to challenge the ideas and, and practice behind assessment, which are, as you described it, that the expert is is a professional, often perhaps a professional that's not worked with the person with lived experience before, rather than the person with lived experience. So that's firstly, where does the expertise lie? And secondly, well, what are you assessing against anyway? You're assessing against eligibility for a rationed service, which you don't believe should be rationed in the way that it is being rationed. So it's how do you act optimally in an imperfect world, which of course is, that's one of the central things about being a social worker or a social work student is understanding this um, paradox, actually, that we're operating in and how do we you move things forward righteously? Absolutely. I mean, it is messy. Like, that's what I've always said. To it's messy. Don't even try to pretend it's not. It's being informed, knowing what it is, but at the same time, knowing that you might have to take it up um, to people or that, you know, there are some wins that you may never win, but at least you try. And what framework are you coming from is so critically important. It's like, let's just not speak about any oppressive practice. Let's actually do. And it really means ceding some power, like, especially if we're thinking about expert, right? Who, you know, and it's not downplaying profession, you know, yes, you've done your work and stuff like that, but are we about working with listening and then being that facilitator or enable support or whatever we want to do, or are we going to just think and make assumptions about what we think is best for that person? You know, we do it all the time. I mean, each of us have bias, you know, we all have that, but I think we're not taught to actually check it. You know, and I think that's one of the things is we have to check every time we're working with someone, every time we're going up against a system or every time we're trying to disrupt something. What are we doing? Actually, is this my crusade? Does that person actually want that or what am I doing? And it's okay to have these conversations. When we don't have the conversation to get dangerous, I think that's one thing that we do have to do is we do no harm, right? But we can be harmful just because if we make that assumption that we think we know what's wrong for a person, that's really dangerous. So, yeah, I don't know. I I just really feel that, you know, part of academia is that role. You know, where else is it going to happen if it doesn't happen here? I think one of the dangerous things, um, I actually think, you know, some of the concepts that are taught within social work, I actually think don't particularly help and are quite dangerous. And the main one is anti-oppressive practice. I would get away with, I would completely do away with that. And I'll tell you why. 
Because anti-oppressive practice starts from the premise that we are not equal and that we have to start from that premise and then we have to work towards equalizing. Well, no, I'm equal to you. Let's start there, you idiot, right? Let's not start with I'm unequal and you're going to somehow empower me. What you and your silly system is going to empower me when actually all you're really there to do is assess me out of services. How? Think it through, people. Think it through, right? So I was just going to, no, can we get rid of silly terms that don't mean anything? You say it, but it, it's lovely spray on language. I don't even know who the person was. I should know that came up with it, but I have such disdain for, for the idea that social work is about people running around trying to equalize things. No, I am equal to get that through your head. I am equal to you, right? Let's start from that premise, because if we start from that premise, then this whole idea that you're going to come to my house and assess me becomes a really silly thing, doesn't it? Let's have a conversation. So I think a lot of social work ideas actually have to be unpicked before we can get to the place where Lisa and I actually want as the starting point, actually, because the whole premise of assessment needs to be disrupted actually because uh, in an ideal world the way it would work is i know what i need to be able to access full inclusion in the world uh i pick up a phone there's another disabled person on the end of it and i go oi mate listen i need a ramp and a wheelchair accessible toilet and a bath and i need the bath removed and i need a walk-in shower thing and yeah um uh, yeah so when's that happening yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, see you later, next Tuesday, yeah, fine, yeah. Like everybody else, when you need something done, you pick up the foot because you've got the resources, because employment is accessible to you, so you've now got your own resources. So you pick up the phone to a builder and you go, hello, mate, yeah, can, uh, yeah, can you come change my bathroom? Yeah, when? Next week? Yeah, all right then. So why am I having to go through all this other bleep, 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 bleep to get exactly the same thing that a non-disabled person can get because they happen to have resources? That's the difference. They've got the resources and the disabled person hasn't got the resources. It's not just that, is it? It's the, it's the fact that those resources are baked into everything. So you're always having to ask for a retro-engineered add-on solution, which, of course, society looks at as being expensive and therefore needing to be rationed. And, oh, do you really need it? So your, your ideal world has to include a way in which that never gets baked in. You know, design for all is baked in. Access for all is baked into everything from the start. And, of course, then does that mean we have to actually challenge not just social work practice and teaching, but bigger things like the way that the power within education is, is um, designed, the way in which public services are designed or even conceptualized. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Absolutely. Because, I mean, social work is just one aspect. It's like I do a lot in planning because it's also a big passion of mine as well. And so Disability is not taught there either. Like, so how do we expect? How do we, we just have hidden it. It's invisible. It's just, no one thinks about it. It's just, I just sit sometimes and think, do I live in a different world? Have I, someone taken me somewhere? How is this so different? When you look at the population, it's, it's normal. Like diversity is, is us. And I don't know, it's just, it's so frustrating. There's just so many elements that we're often having to beg for. Like, it's not just adjustment, it's basic things that you have to beg for. And the undignified conversations we have to have about our toileting, which no other academic or scholar has to have conversations about but we have to constantly be exposed in that regard so yeah I'm probably going way off target now but I'm just thinking you know like everything like totally and everyone knows everything like there's no it's it's so difficult it's just we're seen as so othered and and we're in privileged positions right I I keep reminding myself I'm in a really privileged position I have a job at the moment at the moment and so you know I have a job and you know I can pay bills but what happens to my colleagues that I know I are fighting to get out of the front door are fighting to get support to get out of the bar bed so they can go to the bathrooms like it's we just the danger of not talking about it the danger of not actually normalize like I hate that word I won't use that but the danger to recognize that disability is a just a natural part of being human 
Um, and everyone, as Miriam said, and just nailed it around the any oppressive practice, right? Why do we even have to have a type of language to say, oh, somehow we just don't don't oppress people? <laughs> it's like, you know, when you break it down, it just doesn't make sense. But we have to because that's what we've been doing is oppressing people. So we have to call on our own selves to stop oppressing. So the, it's the world. And I think until the world actually embraces that, guess what? You're only temporary able, as someone reminded me, um, just spoken, spoke about their own experiences. But, you know, this whole notion of normal, just smash it. And, and also the fact that just guess what? Just we are diverse. None of us look like that one person or maybe maybe five percent do of the human population but just stop valuing it and start valuing the richness and diversity and values and stop making us beg for everything it just gets to a point of you get rage (laughs) like you know I'm quite an optimist positive person but you do just get to a point I'm just been emailing about e-scooters now allowed on footpaths and no one engaged with the disability community or our board about what that looks like it's just and that's like too, but like who rides e-scooters hardly anyone right but they get all access to just we can't even get footpaths fixed or curb ramps but yet oh here no let's get the e-scooters on and just don't worry about pedestrians it's like just want to talk about how devalued you are like look at those are examples all the time that continually says that you just are not worthy you are not a valued you are just generally not an equal at all let's talk a bit about about diversity and representation because it strikes me that from, from my personal experience, in the field of disability studies and critical disability studies, there are quite a few disabled academics, although though those, those areas of study don't necessarily get much resource or priority. And we're, I mean, Marion could talk a lot about this because Marion's not only disabled and has received social services, but is a trained social worker. They don't strike me as being that many disabled social work academics, but they strike me as being even fewer active disabled social workers and one of the reasons for that which Mariam can, t- can talk about is is being told well you can't do that job because the people who, who who are receiving the services live in an inaccessible place so how are we even going to get you to those people I mean this is astonishing in the so-called developed world that we're in this position yeah Kelly, do you want to add Miriam yeah you go uh, it's, it's hilarious so it's t- it took me two years I mean, let's not get onto the subject of how stupid the idea of placements are. Let's park that, right? Because that, that could be a talking podcast you could come back for, for for another day. But in this country, we have to do 170-day placement. So you can do a 70-day placement in a community setting, but you have to do 100 days, ideally, Social Work England says, in a statutory service so often that's children's services adult services mental health so it took me two years to find a placement so on my cv i purposely don't put that i'm a disabled person because i don't need to be sifted by people so i would get the call great you've passed and then on me saying where is the disabled accessible base for parking the placement would get withdrawn, right? And most people didn't even have the, I'm not going to use a gendered word, they didn't have the uh, courage, shall we say, to actually say to my face, oh yeah, you know, it's partly because you're, disa- you know, you're disabled and we don't really know what to do with you. They, they would say, but you can't do children's social work because that involves you having to go to people's houses and most people's houses are not accessible, right? Like, that's my problem. So my response was, well, how is that? My-? But surely that's your problem under the Equality Act? That's your problem, yeah? They don't even understand the Equality Act. You think they don't know about disability theory? They don't even know about the law, right? So I'm just kind of like, okay. So then, miraculously, and this is the most hilarious thing, COVID hit and everything goes online. And suddenly the very idiots that told me social work couldn't be done because you have to go into people's houses miraculously found ways of getting into people's houses without physically having to go to people's houses. And so over COVID, I got to go on a placement, right? So I'm like, oh, so it turns out we can do it after all. It's just that we lack a bit of imagination. So it happened. 
it happened. But I tell you, if COVID hadn't have hit, I would still be here looking for that placement. And absolutely. And I think that's it, that's happened across every aspect of life. Like how hard was it to get to a doctor's appointment previously? Now you can do telehealth. You know, like all these things that you used to fight for work from home. You had to pretty much put a whole thesis together on your argument to work from home flexibly to meet your needs. Now it's like, oh yeah, whatever. You say this constant you know, but then, but then they're taking it away from us. I don't know if this is happening yet there, but there's already been slippage where, oh, if you need to feel work from home now, you have to sign a form to say you can. So we're already going back. We're already slipping to these, to these opportunities that opened up so much to, to overcome these barriers. Yeah. Okay. We can't change houses tomorrow. Well, we, we could have, because we've had discrimination legislation for like 20, 30 years now, but anyway, slow, slow changes, slow, but you know, like, sorry, you know, it really exposed just, again, this whole devaluation of what people with disabilities can offer. You know, that it's okay for, like, I don't like the majority, but this is this thinking that um, that policy and service delivery operates from is this idea of, yes, we'll do it for the majority, but okay, oh, you're just such a smaller population, so we can't make all these adjustments for you. But hello, we're over 20%. We're one in four or one in five, you know, where I'm 26.8% here in Tassie, you know, Australia. And, you know, it's we this narrative that keeps being peddled that we're just this other person that that needs to be challenged. And, and I think there's a lot more fighting that needs to happen. Well, that's the thing. We have to fight for everything. So we use the word fighting, but, you know, to try and call that out. But then I think you made a really, really important point coming back to why don't we have disabled social workers? And Miriam talked about placement being a nightmare. And I agree, we could have a whole conversation about that. It's also our academy, our university courses exclude so many students with disabilities. You know, they they have such a difficult time, whether it's our assessment processes, whether it's the way in delivery is. Again, you know, COVID sort of showed and exposed, you know, just how difficult that's been. And then that's tied to placement too, as well. So I think we've got a long way to go as well. Like there's, you know, just even how we adjust and think about how we assess, like we're talking about assessment, it's the flavor of the theme, but it's our own assessments that we do with students too. How we do things that. things that are assessed are, that we haven't really talked about these ideas of risk mm. and vulnerability. And of mm. course, What's clear is that employers, employers of social workers, view those disabled workers as being a risk or being vulnerable, and and therefore they become you know more avoidant of the ideas of having to deal with that. You know they think that they're already dealing with the so-called risk and vulnerability of the service users. Why would they want to have to deal with risk and vulnerability of employees? Which of course is complete nonsense because you know your your workplace rights and support in work, you know well-being is big on the agenda at the moment should apply to absolutely everyone in every job. Plus it doesn't capture that most people with disabilities are quite resilient where like with COVID people stress but people are just like oh yeah we've got this we know what it's like to be locked up we know what it's like to sort of you know be creative with our resources and stuff like that so you know this whole notion you're right this whole notion of vulnerability we overlay on people whether it's children whether it's you know disabled people um, it's funny because it really it's the opposite almost to some grads you know it's almost through our experiences that it's like even I hate the word resilient you know but just we've got capacity we've got things to give we've got experiences and skills um, that aren't of, measured yeah absolutely I'm always reminded that the the day of the Triffids was, was a brilliant novel um, and film and television adaptation and it describes a world in which these alien kind of plant monsters come down to the earth and, and overrun it and the, the the mechanism by which they overrun it is that there are these lights in the sky which blind everyone so on the day after these lights in the sky, which everyone looks at, almost the entire population has been blinded and is kind of staying at home, freaking out. And they and they have this brilliant scene where this blind dude, who's blind anyway, is kind of walking in the park, cheerfully kind of wandering around, wondering where the hell is everyone? But it's completely fine, you know, just taking a walk in the park like he does every day. It's absolutely brilliant. Just, yeah, I just think sometimes you just the ways we even look at people's skill, like capacities and and skills and what people off have to offer. It's again, it's very narrow in the way of thinking. You know, we don't measure like flexibility or creativity as as well. We don't value that as well as being able to hit a hammer or something. I don't know. You know, and that's part of capitalism. You know, that's another whole conversation, isn't it? But yeah, but Mary. So I mean, one of the one of the things I was going to say is. 
seeing as you know one of the things that this podcast is trying to kind of get under as well is sort of like how would assessment change you know and and I think one of the things that's always really perplexed me is um is I don't understand the point of the yearly or biannually reassessment where they come to your house and you go are you still a crip yeah I'm still a crip you're still a crip can we can we re-rehearse how it is that you're still a crip oh yeah yeah well I'm still a crip Oh, okay. You're still a crip then. Yeah, I'm still a crip. Oh, okay. Tick, 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 tick. She's still a crip. Service continues. Listen, I'll call you when I'm not a crip. Totally. We have that um, with with our systems as well and particularly the national disability system which was you know it was actually designed and fought so hard by the community and to see it just get completely re you know overridden re-scoped pulled apart it's been really disheartening because it was like wow for a moment we thought yes finally we're (laughs) self-determining no and then that's where the erosion came you know we see the eligibility and now the reviews our plans have to be reviewed each week um each year and goals but you can only have certain goals you can have pre-employment but not employment support you know I can get a cab here if I go to something but I can't use that if I need to go to work like it's this Again, what you were talking about, Mary, it keeps coming back to, and, and Dan, exactly what you're talking about, the scarcity of resources that they keep saying to us, you know, this procurity or whatever. And we have to fight for the crumbs because that's all we're given. But, you know, but we're happy to be spending money on propping up big industries. We don't ask the question, you know, of them. So it comes back to what do we value? What do we value and what do we want to invest in? You know, we're, we've got wealthy countries that we're both, um, it's just, Unfortunately, I think this keeps coming back to the fact that they just don't see us that way. You know, society still sees us as this burden. We spend the last few minutes talking about what social work departments in universities and social work pedagogy can do differently. And in your in the chapter, you do you do talk about um, about that a bit, and you and you certainly make some interesting points about who's delivering content about disability and also how embedded that is in the whole curriculum, as opposed to just sort of silos of the curriculum, if you like. Could you say a bit about what what you, what you your thoughts are on that? Yeah, I mean, there's so many things we could be doing. And I think there are examples where, you know, who's delivering content's changing. I've tried to bring that in where I am. But again, it's only in the one unit that I teach, you know, but trying to get that embedded across the curriculum. It seems like, so, so the stuff that, you know, I really value making sure that diversity I think one of the biggest problems also about the way disability is taught is there's a certain type of disability and that's again so it's not just the normate there's the disabled normate or in a sense and so it's really important that we're showing the diversity and representation and also what that's like and it's you know and disabilities then also are very attached to older persons too so but and so bringing in young people that can tell their stories of growing up but also an opportunity where it's just not a speech pattern. I, I really hate when you've seen examples where people have been rolled out. And we've all, we've had the experience, I'm sure, Miriam, you've probably had this experience as well, where you're the token crip <laughs> and you just rolled out as the showcase. So, you know, one of the things that I find, particularly with the students, and I used to teach, this was a first year undergrad, so completely green, which I think is better sometimes. But anyway, it was about that they were feeling okay because it's one of those things is there's this fear of getting it wrong too that some of our students have that don't have disabilities and how we actually can set that up is really important as well and so this was a relationship I had with these young people and so they came and gave their story their way but also there was opportunities to sit in a smaller group to actually where people felt safe to actually ask questions that they felt uncomfortable asking and you know the young people and all that were supported and um, we did work around that beforehand but it's that authentic engagement too and how we build that in Um, but as I said you know this one-off you know exposure in one subject and then four years down the track and graduated doesn't come up again it's you know that's not okay it has to be embedded but it's I don't know if this is in the same with the UK but it seems like unless the accreditation body actually demands that it's embedded it just it won't happen and this is one of the problems that we face it's like oh tick tick we're meeting this but you know this is just only a requirement for this you know there's those other there's other issues that are going on around these accreditation processes too but I think we can change that you know and leading the way showing examples where it's in where we're embedding but you know 
I don't know about you, but we don't even sit down and go, hey, who's teaching disability? Well, <laughs> you know, like what I'm suggesting. One of the challenges, isn't it, is that because it's seen as this add-on in the UK, what happens is that each university gets a tiny amount of money to consult experts by experience. I mean, I love it because the, the terminology changes as well. It's kind of, we're not this, we're that, we're called this, we're not that. It's kind of, you know, it's like whatever. So there's a, there's a kind of a pot of money. It's a tiny pot of money, right? Some universities don't even spend that tiny amount of money because they can't work out what to do with their service users. <laughs> but let's, let's not get into that. And there isn't that, you know, the, the benefits trap here is just so massive that universities then get so anxious about paying disabled people for things. And then they don't want to pay you at the same level as uh, as the hourly paid lecturers because why would they because you're not equal to them even though they've been allegedly practicing anti-oppressive practice for 20 years no you we actually had this at a university where we'd campaigned very successfully for the exact same hourly rate and some numpty professor came along and decided that the service users could only get 14 pounds an hour as opposed to the £42 an hour that the, le that the lecturers were getting. And then they were surprised that no experts by experience wanted to work with them anymore. Because I'm like, do you understand that as a wheelchair user, a lot of our guys have to get a taxi to your university, which costs money. Money. It costs money. Yeah? And, and they're like, yeah, but, you know, I mean, they're just coming to talk about their personal experience. And that's not the same as an academic talking about the stuff that they talk about. And I'm like, wow. OK, let you we, we have a long way to go because you don't even recognize the idea that my experience and the knowledge that I have, not just in my head, but that I embody is of such little value to you that you want to pay 14 pounds an hour for it, which is basically what you pay your cleaner to come and clean your house. Yeah, it's just that, think about that. And I disengaged from that university. I don't work with them anymore. So I think, you know, the, 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 we can talk up co-production and experts by experience and, and all of these things. But I always say, you know, you understand how much a system values the contribution of people by the amount of resource they're prepared to put into it. And for I don't know how long, for as long as I've been involved in user involvement, it's been the same six grand forever. And apparently that's, that's supposed to mean that students get an experience about what it's like to, to work with people that they will eventually have to work with. Bizarre, bizarre. Yeah, I was going to say, well, you're so far ahead of us because we don't have any, we don't even have a pot of money. But then the 14 pounds you lost me on that one, I was like, oh my God. But this is, this is exactly right. It's the value that's placed on people according to judgment of what you're worth, whether, and gosh, if we can't get it right here, how, how are we going to dismantle full structures? But, you know, it's exactly right. It speaks volumes about what people think about you. And that's where, like, recognition theory is really important. I, I, his mind slipped me now, but um, it was really this classic things. If you're not even given recognition, you're not even thought about or, or, or even afforded any sort of not just resources, but even voice and and thought. Yeah, it's so it's so true, um, unfortunately. But not to not to downplay everything. You know, there is still, but no. But we have to tackle these, right? We have to, I think, have these serious conversations, and that's where we need people. We need disabled academics. We need disabled social workers. We need just people with lived experience valued and actually helping. Just authentic. And I think I'll scream if I hear co-design one more time. And it's actually just so token. It's just, I don't know, is it the same with over there in the UK? It's just gone everywhere. Exactly the same, yeah. Oh, just stop. <laughs> Not stop, do, but do it properly. Be authentic. Let, let it be led. And this comes back to power, right? No one wants to cede power. It's still, 
according to me, according to what really, I want. You know what it's it, what it is is that it's the different spray on language just gets added. So you were a you were a service user. Now you're an expert by experience. You used to have to work with, not to, and now it's co-production. It's just kind of like actually, unless we're going to teach people how to do it properly, let's not kind of conflate things and and use lovely language if we have absolutely no idea how to how to do it, you know. And it's just sort of like let let's uh, actually work out together how you would do that and then put theories kind of like in place that actually resemble the practice as opposed to oh we've got this thing it's like the never what I call like the net the never never thing we can we can name it but we have absolutely no strategy as to how to get there and everybody builds a career around writing articles this is what academia around that that thing that we can never actually get to um, yeah. And I'm like, I don't want to wait for the over the rainbow moment. You know, can we actually deal with the here and now? Because yeah. uh, if we start dealing with the here and now, then, you know, things might actually begin to happen. I mean, just yeah. very simple things that I think universities can do, which we have successfully managed to do. And I don't want to kind of turn this podcast into a downer on all, no. all, <laughs> all social work <laughs> departments in the known universe. It's very simple things. You know, I, I think sometimes academics, by virtue of being academics, kind of overcomplicate things in their own minds. So the very simple things that we've asked universities to do is, look, you need your social work students to actually visibly see disabled people on campus, milling around, not necessarily even just in your class, talking about their personal experience and all of that you just just as part of the fabric of the university so why don't you make id badges available and have people be able to come and just use the library for their own for their own kind of like interest and have people kind of use the university as an extension of their homes because i I'm, i mean it won't come as any surprise to you Lisa but since the cuts day centers have closed down the places that disabled people used to be able to gather's closed down universities present a massive resource in the community where there are leisure centers and there are lots of things that you know if you're if you're really true to your word about wanting to equalize access and social justice and all of those things that you claim that social work is about and there's this thing called an ID badge. Make disabled people research fellows. Mm. Don't even pay them to start with, although let's not get onto the payment thing because she'll go. I'll go off onto a rant again. Do some really simple things because actually one of the things I find is that if you make disabled people part and parcel of the fabric of something and mm. people see us getting lunch, going to the library, struggling to use the photocopier, that's when genuine interaction happens yeah and so I've always my fantasy has always been to try and create this weird covert disability course where you plot disabled people all across campus who are having various difficulties and you see whether the students actually come you know to assist and talk to you about how whether you need some assist you know all that sort of stuff that doesn't all the kind of unconscious stuff that we would do kind of human to human gets lost because you professionalize things to such an extent it becomes quite robotic so actually you know if we could move away from that and have something that's a lot more natural a natural interaction that would be lovely I'd love to have a natural interaction with a social worker No, and and you're right, you know, there are so many ways it can be done differently. And that's the thing, it's not to lose hope. It's just, we just need to rethink it and all value the things that work. And and those examples you talk about, even like when you think about when people are learning how to have conversation, when they're doing, you know, the mock-ups of interviewing, like why not have authentic people rather than these scenarios and stuff like that? There's different ways we can do it. You know, that um, 
I used to, I did a lot of the community development because that's been a lot of my work is around building communities and, and stuff like that. And having those, as you said, those real interactions or, or examples where we can do more practice-based work or designing or, you know, inquiry-based learning and stuff like that. That's not just a, a piece of paper, but we actually have people telling their stories and learning through that in a safe, supportive way that we can do. It just helps expose people. It's the same with the young people when they had an opportunity, the students had an opportunity to ask the young people just things to reflect. And they found that so powerful. They they re- responded saying they had so much fear about getting it wrong, but they, through these experiences, they could start, start dispelling that stuff. And I think that's also real is that people do generally want to do things, but they just don't know how to do it because they haven't had that exposure experience. And so part of that work that we can do is actually help facilitate that and in in an environment before they get out and practice and stuff like that. There are those opportunities, but that's around how do we build that curriculum that still, you know, works with the accreditation system. But to bring it full circle, it does, it it, it is a conceptual turn that social work needs to make in equalising disability with race and gender and sexuality and queer theory and all of that because if in the minds or if if you're implanting in the minds of newly qualified social workers that there's all this stuff there's all this kind of you know systemic discrimination that goes on for these groups and we as social workers are, are there as, as, as people that kind of uphold the rights of, of, of these people and black lives matter and queer lives matter. And if it matters for them, then it matters for disabled people. Disabled people are not separate to, yeah. to that. And I think that's the thing that has to be embedded first because yeah. then people really begin to question, oh, but where, where are the disabled exactly. social Why are they workers? here? Yeah. Why are they not here? In the same way as people have had to for many years ago, but where are the black social workers? You know, yeah. and now we have a lot of black social workers. And also it's, it's also about who are these systems supposed to be for? So many people have been locked out of eligibility now that really the support services are, I think, in the majority actually for disabled people. So... It's either for physically impaired people, people with mental health issues, people with learning difficulties. Mm-hmm. Um, once you take out some of the kind of children's services stuff, and even in the children's services stuff, you're talking about children with disabilities. Mm-hmm. When you actually look at it, you sit there and you go, hold on, this is mostly disability. And it's mm-hmm. scandalous that there aren't more disabled people working in that system in no other place would we think that that was acceptable yet we've kind of gone we've kind of gone oh you know it's brilliant let's all work on getting some black social workers in because there was a recognition that a lot of the service users are from ethnic minorities but actually a lot of your service users are disabled and i'm i'm am i the only disabled social worker in england I, i i hope i'm not reach out to me you know bizarre i think it's worth us saying usually on these podcasts lisa we have a um one of the students in the social on social work master's course or, or two of the students as kind of co-presenters and, and and asking questions it's completely up to them whether they want to get involved <clears throat> and they have on the different other subjects uh, and it may well be that they felt that their personal interests and testimonies meant that, that that those subjects were suited to them but for this subject area we didn't have a student wanting to get themselves put forward and that's absolutely fine but it's possible that some of these things that we've been talking about are, are characterized by by that decision so that's something perhaps for us to think about actually we have to um, wind up now because yeah. we've gone over our hour wow but i yes. want to say this has been a really fascinating Hour and a bit. Thank you so much. Is there anything that you want to say, Lisa, at the end as we offer our thanks to you? Oh no, I, I hope it um is around conversation. I suppose it's a good starting point of conversation, and it's been brilliant. I'm so thankful for reaching out and asking me to come along because I think the more opportunities we have to talk, and the more opportunities, no, not just talk, but really talk. And I suppose delve into these questions that not everyone gets an opportunity to delve into. And that might be, as you said, reflective of uncertainty and why people weren't 
coming up here, you know, or, or wanting to volunteer. It's also whether people feel safe to even talk about it because we're such we're in a world where it's it's really difficult to do that. Um, as we've we've spoken about. Yeah, I just think let's just keep talking and keep disrupting and questioning. I think it's really important. That's we really need to do that going forward um, to make the changes that we've talked about. So thank you so much. It's been really fabulous. Yeah. Thank you so much. So thank you to Dr. Lisa Stafford and to my colleague, Dr. Mariam Zanuzzi. And see you all next time on the podcast. Thank you. This podcast is produced by Yohai Hacker and edited by Vimal Dalal. To find out more about Brunel University Social Work Program, please check our web pages at brunel.hack.uk forward slash social dash work or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. To learn more about Ginger Giraffe, visit our website, www.gingergiraffe.coop. Thanks very much and good evening.